federal government is developing regulations to allow oil sands operators to begin releasing water from tailing ponds back into the environment. It's a practice that's been banned for decades. Here to help us understand the science behind this policy change is Mohamed Gamal Eldin, U of A professor and senior industrial research chair in oil sands tailings water treatment. Good morning to you, professor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you first just explain briefly what exactly is this, the the tailing ponds? What's in this water? What is this that's been released? So uh, in the tailing ponds, after the uh, basically extract the uh, bitumen from uh, the soil or ore material, basically, uh, what's left is some silt tailings. Uh, or silt, clay, and sand, and few hydrocarbons or a number of hydrocarbons uh, left in the sample or in the matrix, basically, including, you know, many compounds and uh, very little residual bitumen. Then this actually is pumped back after the extraction process into those tailing ponds. So, of course, with the tailings, also, there is some residual water, and that's what uh, rides to the surface. You end up with tailings in the bottom, uh, and water on the top. And this water is, is recycled several times, uh, as, as high as could be 80 times, uh, to be used again and again in the extraction process. And that's what makes the uh, levels of the, uh, you know, different uh, chemicals or constituents or pollutants, if you want to call it that as well, uh, rise up uh, with time. Professor, why are they, or why have they been considered dangerous in the past? Uh, Basically, as far as I know, since they started this industry, uh, there has been a zero liquid discharge imposed by the industry and the government, or between the two of them. And uh, the reason for that is that they wanted to do uh, more work on how to treat this water, study the, uh, those waters and their impact on the environment. Because remember, before anything has been treated and released after treatment to the environment, like municipal wastewater or other industrial wastewater, we have to understand how can we treat it. Uh, different solutions uh, to treat those waters and how uh, costly they are and do all the economic analysis. And the other uh, side of the equation is to look at the impact on the receiving environment without without treatment. And this uh, this includes a lot of work by, you know, biologists, microbiologists, you know, like toxicologists. And uh, then they come up with, uh, you know, like a reasonable set of standards uh, that are uh, achievable. And then, you know, these standards are go through the regular process of developing them. Once they are approved, then this is what the industry needs to follow to meet those standards when they treat the water and release it. So that actually happened in many industries before and including municipal uh, uh, wastewater treatment. So these tailing ponds, they've been sitting full for, for years, considered far too dangerous, the water in them, to release into the environment. So what has changed now? How are things being, how is this water being treated and, and potentially considered safe now to release? Uh, some of the waters uh, are being treated, some are not yet. But basically the reason for that is that uh, they are growing out of space. That's one thing. Uh, there is a lot of uh, water stored with no treatment, about 1.4 cubic or uh, billion cubic meters. And uh, there, after a lot of research has been done, uh, now we know that there are solutions uh, that could be used to treat those waters. The only thing uh, that's remaining, uh, as far as I know, or the bottleneck of this whole process is developing those uh, standards that are going to be in place to basically uh, uh, to make sure that these waters are treated up to these standards before being released. So that's 
what's happening nowadays. And since the research has uh, come up with many solutions uh, in terms of how to treat those water, so the solutions are out there. There has been a lot of research done as well uh, from, a, you know, like from toxicologists and microbiologists, biologists, and so on. So I believe there could be some answer now. And even some research are still being done now on different ways still to treat it, uh, including some pilots being done by the industry, like, uh, you know, pit lakes. You know, there are a couple of pilots done recently, uh, right now by the industry, among others. So there are actually, we know now how to treat it, and uh, we need the standards so we can make sure that those treatment systems that will be implemented will meet those standards. That's basically the summary of what's happening. You mentioned, uh, Professor, research. Let's talk about, you know, the impact studies that have been done. Are these independent? Or where, where are they coming from? And just how plentiful are these studies? So uh, myself, I have a research industrial chair funded by NSERC, uh, which is the National Science and Engineering Council of Canada and uh, the industry. But we do independent research. We are not dictated by what the industry tells us. No, we do what we think is the right thing to do. There are other people, many researchers across the country and even outside of the country who did work on those waters uh, from engineering uh, all the way to scientists, uh, you know, like uh, science uh, aspects uh, in order to assess how dangerous the water could be or how toxic the water could be without treatment, and then how can we treat it properly to get it to a point where it cannot be toxic anymore. So there is a lot of work that has been done, and it's all out there in the literature, uh, public, uh, basically available literature that's been refereed and looked at by other also independent scientists to assist the work and whatnot. So, I mean, you as an expert then, are, are you convinced there would be no negative effects of releasing what is now considered toxic water? I cannot say for 100% sure, uh, because that all depends on, okay, how, what the treatment systems they are going to uh, select to treat the waters. Uh, are they put together in a proper sequence of one after the other? And at the end, uh, what are the standards? Because I don't know yet what are the standards going to be like, correct? So the standards have to be out there and then assess the treatment systems that we have developed, make sure that it could be operated up to a point where we reach those levels and even far beyond and then yeah then we can say for sure yeah this water could be safe to be released and again that work includes people like myself from engineering uh discipline you know like toxicologists among others let's talk about you know the they always say the perception is is huge mm. and i yes. think that anytime you talk about the the oil sands when you talk about the energy industry these days there's that negative connotation so is this a case of an uphill battle to try to present your research and your findings, seeing as there is a, such a, a negative you know, attitude these days by many toward the industry. Of course, uh, there is, oh, this has always been the case, right? Uh, towards any industry, if, if I look at an industry that uh, could generate a, a lot of money, at the same time, they need to do something with, to make them more environmental friendly and that make this industry more eco-friendly, then I would feel, yeah, they need to do something, right? So that happens to the, like, this is ha- this happens to be the case now with this industry. But uh, I also need to step back and look at, okay, any industry before, even including our municipal systems, we need to use the water, but we cannot store the used water or uh, untreated water forever. We need to treat it to put it back into our rivers. So we need to do that safely, right? So we know that in our municipal wastewater, there are many micropollutants, many pollutants that could be very harmful to the receiving environment. But we need to treat those wastewaters to the point where they are safe now to release, right? So since it's been done to many industries before and municipal uh, wastewater in many municipalities, so so I believe it should be done to this industry as well. And, and I think it will be done uh, one day, I hope so, very soon. 
We thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it very much. Thank Thanks you. for joining Have us, Professor. Day. Thank you. Professor Mohammed Gamal Al-Din, who is a senior industrial research chair in oil sands tailings water treatment. Let's just hope that, you know, every single box is absolutely ticked because uh, the last thing we need is to release that toxic water into the environment. I can only imagine uh, there are certainly concerns from the indigenous communities and just, uh, you know, the people who live in in that area in northern Alberta. So hopefully they can do it right. I did like uh, the professor said, you know, independent. Yes. Research. Very important. got to follow the money you got to follow exactly the impetus behind it yeah so as, as i mentioned earlier in the program a kind of a point counterpoint that was well, what's going to be happening mm-hmm. the research and the science beyond this is why it's being looked at to release this once again uh, coming up just after eight o'clock of course we're going to talk about the tailings ponds the treat and release idea with uh, uh, jesse cardinal executive director for the keepers of the water organization how it's going to impact and the thoughts of indigenous people and those folks mm-hmm. who live in northern Alberta. The uh, people who it might directly yeah, affect, in, in Quote, unquote, in their backyard, so to speak. The federal government is set to revise regulations and allow for the potential treatment and release of water from tailings ponds created by the oil and gas industry. But what will the impact be on northern Alberta communities? Well, joining us to help understand the impact is Jesse Cardinal, Executive Director of Keepers of the Water. Good morning to you, Jesse. Um, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a super important discussion, and I, you know we've got lots of texts in after we spoke with a scientist early this morning who said the purification process really isn't at the point yet where that water, the tailings pond water, can be released into the environment. Can you tell us you know, a little bit about your organization, Keepers <laughs> of the Water, and, and how you're feeling about this discussion altogether? Yeah, so Keepers of the Water, I mean... We all, we all have a responsibility to help take care of water um, and keepers of the water, the organization, we take that responsibility seriously. We know that water is sacred, that it gives life to everything. So it gives life to humans, to animals, to um, trees, to medicines, all everything in the water. Everything needs clean water to, to live. Mm-hmm. And so... It's just, it's really important for us to touch on some of the impacts. Um, you know, we, we've built long-standing relationships with the communities. Um, people from the directly impacted communities are with keepers of the water. So we've heard these stories for decades now of since the 1960s when the tar sands industry was really um, getting on the landscape up there that there was a huge decline in muskrat. And muskrats is a telltale sign if you have a healthy ecosystem or not. If there's no muskrats and the muskrats are disappearing, that means there's there's a lack of fresh water. And so, you know, when we get into the tailings ponds, as you guys have heard from the scientists, is that there's huge, huge concerns about it. And the fact that, um, you know, the tailings ponds are toxic waste that's left over from the, the bitumen extraction process. And so what's left over is the sand and the clay, water, the residual bitumen and other hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons are cancer-causing salts. So you can't have salt in fresh water because it raises the temperature and it it just kills everything. And so what the the industry is saying is that we're able to clean the water, um, but what we know from, from, you know, the science reports that they're providing and the government is providing is that there's still 
um, uh, nathanic acid, which is a major cancer-causing chemical, as well as high levels of salinity. And um, so in talking with our science team, which is very knowledgeable and diverse, they're saying you can um, take out the, the, high, the, the saline and the nathanic acids, but you need two uh, separate treatment processes, which is going to require huge infrastructure facilities to uh, desalination plant as well as uh, um, a process that's going to get rid of this methanic acid. What's happening is these companies don't want to spend the money. So the solution is there. And so the tailings ponds have been um, kind of a... a a headache for everybody, I guess, for industry, for people living there. And it's kind of, a, it, it, it's not kind of, it is a huge science experiment. So they're always kind of trying to figure out the cheapest way. Yeah. So they have options. It's just they're trying to figure out what's the cheapest way, not necessarily the, the best way for the environment. And so what we're saying is, no, if you have the ability to take out the saline, to take out the nathanic acids, then do so and recycle that water. If the water is that clean that you can dump it into the Athabasca River for everything and everyone to um, ingest, then there's no reason for them to be able to recycle that water and keep reusing it and reusing it. If they can, if they claim they can clean it that well, then, you know, then reuse it because the amount of water they use, so it's it's like, I mean, the number varies, but they say for one barrel of um, oil, it's, you know, about on average five barrels of water, fresh water that they use, um, and also one barrel of oil, they say it estimates to about 12 barrels of these toxic tailings. And so they don't have to use fresh water. They have found the solution, you know. So if they're able, because if there's even a bit of saline in our water, over time, that's going to make the temperature of the water increase. And that's just devastating all around. Like the people downstream are completely land-based people like right now they don't the only way that they can get out is to fly in or fly out and the thing that the, this industry this um massive destructive industry has done it's completely destroyed land-based um economy you know and that's where we're headed like we're headed back to land-based economies and it, and it's destroying the the ability for people who live up there to have land-based economies Jesse, you know, we love your points. We appreciate your time this morning. We're uh, out of time uh, at this point, but thank you for taking the time this morning. Really quickly, if uh, there's a book by Kevin Timoney. It's called The Hidden Scourge, and he talks about all of the, in the, it's called The Effects of the Fossil Fuel Industry on Ecosystems and Our Democracy. It talks about why we shouldn't be trusting the government, and the federal government needs to stop creating regulations and tell the companies to take this water and keep using it. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Thanks, you too, Jesse. That's Jesse Cardinal, Executive Director of Keepers of the Water. If you've had a doctor's appointment recently, chances are it was, or you had the option, to have a virtual appointment. Zoom and phone appointments have become commonplace during the pandemic. But what does the future hold for virtual health care? Here to help us answer these questions is Terine Ashikian, health sciences researcher and PHA student, Simon Fraser University. Good morning to you, Terine. Good morning. 
I'm, I'm wondering, uh, do we have any stats of, of just how common virtual appointments have been through the pandemic? We definitely do have a lot of stats, um, especially during the pandemic, about 90% of, of virtual care appointments were taking place during the pandemic. So that, that is quite, quite a higher percentage and uh, it continues to be used even now, um, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. So it is, it is, it is quite common now. And, and Talene, I think that's a good point. You know, it wasn't brand new for the pandemic. It did exist. We just didn't use it very much. So now that we've all kind of gotten used to it, obviously, or know that it's certainly an option, what does the future look like for virtual healthcare? Is it here to stay? I definitely believe it. it is here to stay. I believe we are heading in the right direction with the, advance- with the advancements of technology and the extensive research that is being conducted within this area of field. Um, there will only be room to better the quality of our healthcare systems and improve patient-centered care that is being delivered. And uh, virtual care can offer that. Is there any pushback from the medical community to go back to in-person consultations? Is this something that you know, the public and, uh, you know, patients very much like, but the healthcare profession doesn't like, or is it a bonus and, uh, you know, a good option for them as well? You know, despite the many benefits, of course, there's going to be barriers. You know, patients may not have access to the technology or tech literacy to manage virtual care. Um, Of course, physical tests, vaccines, specialist referrals, clinical treatments, all require medical appointments. So, you know, there are options for virtual care, but there are barriers too. Let's talk about the barriers and who actually experiences them. Who are the people that were having trouble getting access to doctors or healthcare because of virtual appointments? Now, it is most common in the in the elderly. Um, you know, I do believe that, you know, even though it is not impossible for them to learn, um, you know, we can most definitely be, it can most definitely be a difficult process since they may not be used to it and the uprise of technology and many advancements that come along with it. But I do believe that um, uh, we are given, just like any other task for an elderly, we can help them, such as shopping for groceries, whether it be online or in person, delivering them. Um, so, of course, the healthcare professional can reach out to the secondary contact, of course, with the consent of the, the patient, Um to reach out to a family member, nephew, niece, friend, and whoever it may be to help them, you know, through the phone to assist them with access, uh, accessing the virtual care. Let's talk about, you know, for us, it's a lot more efficient to, to see the doctor, uh, you know, via Zoom call. Uh, you don't have to get in the car. You don't have to find parking or even on the phone. It's easier for us and more efficient. How about for the medical profession? Is this a case that it speeds things up and maybe, for example, a, a family doctor can see more patients in a day now that it's virtual? It definitely offers flexibility taking patients' um, visits outside of the physician's normal hours, normal office hours. So it definitely offers a lot of flexibility and convenience for both the healthcare professional and the patient. I'm wondering if, if you've looked at anything, Italine, when it comes to how widespread globally this trend is. Is this, you know, uh, yeah, obviously we're on board here in Canada. Is this happening in many more places around the globe? It's definitely been something international. A lot of people had to resort to virtual care during the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic was something worldwide. So um, a lot of people had, uh, you know, had to use virtual care and there was no other option. Um, And it was better than nothing, of course. Likely here to stay. Thank you for the conversation, Talene. Appreciate your time.
Thank you so much for having me. Talina Shikian is a health sciences researcher and PhD student at Simon Fraser University. Curious as to how many people have used virtual medical care throughout the pandemic. Is it something that you turned to? Had you ever done it before or is it just something that, you know, became a new way of doing it? I think for everybody, if people have access, and let's face it, there are some who don't have access to the, the online resources and maybe there are seniors who just would have too difficult a time. But I would think for seniors, if it's possible... It would be good for them because you don't have to go and sit in the doctor's office where people are sick and spreading their germs around, whatever germs that might be. Yeah. You know, it keeps them at home or they may, may not drive. So a barrier is, you know, having to get to the doctor as well. So I don't know. It seems like a great idea to me, but maybe there are people out there who who didn't enjoy it, didn't like it. It's funny you say that because, yes, it's who would benefit perhaps the most, the seniors, but who might not have the access or the knowledge the of the seniors, tech. Some yeah. of the seniors, I don't want to, you know, be blanketed with ageism because some of them just, my mom can text like oh, crazy yeah. on Facebook. But, you know, or they have trepidation. They're worried about security. I know that my mm-hmm, mom, for example, mm-hmm. doesn't want to online bank. Yeah. So, I mean, that that is the interesting part. But the other part, which it, I guess it depends on how well you know your doctor and what your lifestyle is. Because for some people, not to say that it's not about their health, but going to the doctor is kind of a social interaction that they might not get every day in their lives. I guess. Um, my experience Ugh. with it is, for the most part, I, I go now and I'm, I'm responsible probably because I'm married. Uh, I go to the doctor at least once a year, sometimes twice a year if mm-hmm. I have any concerns. But I do have to go because I take a medication. I have okay, a, right. a borderline so high go, blood pressure. But you have bef- to go get a, yeah. see, see the doctor to get a refill, yeah. right? But a high blood pressure, for example, is something you can check at the pharmacy. And if you've got a home test, mm-hmm. you can check or if you have any concerns. So for me, it seemed like a bit of a waste every handful of months going in just to say, my blood pressure is good. I've checked it yeah. at home. Then they check it. Because it's something you should be able to a do. A rigmarole. Yeah. And then you're having to go to the pharmacy where that's two trips. Uh, over the phone, I've, she's an, asked me questions. Yeah. We've talked about any concerns. And then I go to the pharmacy mm-hmm. and pick up my prescription with an eye on. And the, the beauty is with prescriptions and the way they control it, I have a limited supply. So the second she wants me in there, I'm coming you have in. To, yeah. I, you know, I think you have to go yearly for your physical and your checkup, whatever it might be. And certainly if there's a concern, you should be going oh, right yeah. to the doc- doctor. But for most of it, why not just do it virtually over the phone, over the computer, whatever it might be. I don't like going and sitting in the doctor's office yeah. with a bunch of germy people. I don't want to touch the magazines. I don't want to touch the chair I'm sitting in. I don't want to touch any of it. So I'm more than happy to do it. Though I never, I haven't had any concerns over the past, you know, little bit that I needed to worry about it. But yeah, I certainly would, I would do it that way. No problem. And uh, let's keep this in mind. If you ever see Sue DL in your doctor's office, she <laughs> thinks of me. you, she thinks of you as germy people, <laughs> so to speak. Hey, we got a text. I had virtual physiotherapy during the pandemic. That was the only way when they were closed to be able to monitor for insurance purposes. I did a workout. I've done workouts over the, the, you know, the online gyms kind of thing through the pandemic because that was the way we had to yeah. do it. So I think there are ways to do all of it, the majority of it, I should say. Yeah. If you need to go to the doctor, you need to go to the doctor, but this is just far easier. You don't have to drive. You don't have to park. You don't have to yeah. touch anything. Well, you mean, for example, like if you, for, if you had a, a cut on your arm and you think it might be affected, I'm not too sure how effective. The cameras are effective and maybe it depends. I think it's really a case-by-case basis. Sure. But- Tis the season for family get-togethers, but as we all know, when kids are involved, sometimes more planning is required than just what you'll be serving your guests for dinner. Are your kids' table manners up to par? If not, now's the time to get a jump on etiquette and the expectations you have for your kids during any kind of family get-together. So We've got some tips 
and some help to get us there and go as smoothly as possible. And we're joined by parenting expert, Julie Friedman-Smith. Hi, Julie. How are you? Hi, Sue. I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, let's talk about this table manners. I mean, you know, I guess that's all debatable as to, you know, is that, you know, are we expecting our kids to know how to set the table or just how to behave at the table? It kind of can be up for grabs as to what that means, right? That's right. It's different for every family. And basically what we find is that, you know, when we go back to our parents' table with our kids, suddenly we're kids ourselves and then we're embarrassed about all these things that we that our parents wouldn't be happy with and they're yelling at our kids or... I don't know. It can just be fraught. And so we've got enough time between now and Christmas to get a, a few of those things, realistic things, under control mm-hmm. so that we don't have to be just kind of stressed out the whole time we're there. It is kind of a, a broad topic, Julie, when you think about it. So let, let's break it down. you got a few key points for us. We want to make sure we get to all of them. Start with number one about being realistic. What do you mean by that? Well, you're not going to change everything in the two weeks that we have before the holidays. So it's really about getting clear. You know, is there one or two things that make you cringe? Is it that you're worried that the moment somebody puts food out that your kids don't like, they're going to say, ew, yuck? (laughs) Or, you know, are they they always getting up from the table and running around? Or, you know, just key a couple of key things and get clear on them. And then what we can do is just talk to our kids about it. And it's not about you always do this wrong, so you have to do this right. It's as a family, we're going to work on these couple of things over the next couple of weeks so that when we get to grandma and grandpa's house, we've got it set. We're going to come in as a family and do this in a really cool way. And so it's really just planning those things and even practicing them, not at the dinner table, but just for two minutes, sit down and practice please and thank yous or practice how you're going to ask to be excused from the table or whatever that key thing Mm -hmm. is. If it's about sitting for longer, well, you've got from now until then to set a realistic amount of minutes and then just start working your way through and how are the kids going to do that how are they going to keep their body still so there's lots of tiny little things that we can work on between now and then and have the kids feeling really good about it yeah very i like that and practice right i mean don't throw it at them at the last second because it won't go the way you want it to go and you know maybe talk about eating with your kids um, your mouth open as well that's uh, just my biggest pet peeve at my table, but whatever. Uh, let's move on to the next one because I like this a lot. It's the planning and the practice and greeting and meeting new people because that really is a skill that you have to teach your kids. It is, and we haven't done it for two years. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I just remember my kids being stuck behind my thigh and kind of gripping mm-hmm. onto it and not wanting to poke their head out, right? And so we can do a couple of things. Either we can accept that that's the way it's going to be and not spend all of our time saying, oh, so sorry, he's so shy, she's so shy. Come out and say hi to this person. Come out and say hi. And not actually talking to the person in front of us. Or we can, again, do a little bit of planning with our kids. And there's this idea of good, better, best. It would be good if you stuck your hand out from behind me and waved at the person. It would be better if you poked your head out and your hand and waved at the person. And it would be best if you said hi when you waved at the person. You can kind of start from there and practice with your kids and then give them the choice. We're heading into this situation. Here's a new person. Good, better, or best. You choose. And we can really go from there and then work it along as our kids get at, get better at doing it. Then we can expect a little bit more of them. And, you know, you, you say, uh, you know, planning. You've said plan a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So your final point, we've got about a minute left here. Sure. Um, Planning the family gathering, you know, as far as, you know, is the whole family leaving together or is are you taking the younger kids home first, maybe your spouses, and somebody else is staying behind? How does that work? Well, it's just this thing of you don't want to get into an argument in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> 
I don't. Anyway, so make a plan. If you know that one of you is going to want to stay and hang out because it's all your old friends from high school or because you really love talking with your sister and you don't want to miss out on this opportunity, then make a plan that your partner is going to take the kids and leave. Otherwise, somebody's always nagging the other person, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to go. Or all of a sudden we wait until it's too late, then there's a meltdown, and then everybody's <laughs> rushing out and it feels gross. If we plan in advance how it's going to go, what time we're going to leave, it works better for everybody. Brilliant. There is time to plan. We've got the time before Christmas, so better to get it all ready and get it set before it all happens and blows up in our faces, <laughs> right? There's enough going on at Christmas time. Hey, Julie. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Julie Friedman-Smith, parenting expert. We'll have her back. We're going to do a series of these as we move towards the Christmas holiday. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.